This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am super beyond excited for this conversation with Patrick Radden Keefe. You are familiar with his byline, obviously, from The New Yorker and his two most recent books, Say Nothing and Empire of Pain, which are frankly two of the best pieces of nonfiction I've read in a really long time. And I'm certainly not alone in that. Patrick, it's really good to see you. But I have a question because I learned something about you I didn't know until I was researching, which was you have two master's degrees and a law degree. I knew about the law degree. I did not know about the two master's degrees. So multiple degrees and you go into journalism, which seems like a really good way to pay off student loans. Dude, how did we get here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might ask. I always wanted to be a journalist. I, I actually specifically wanted to write for The New Yorker, mm -hmm. really going back to high school, which is when I mm -hmm. started reading it. The strange thing about the uh, journalism as a career is there's no real, it was a mystery to me how you did that. I didn't know how you got in. I didn't know what the ground floor was, what that looked like. And so I liked school. I got a fellowship to go to grad school. I got a fellowship to go to the UK for a couple of years and I did mm -hmm. two different degrees there. So that was free. And then law school was a thing where I, while I was in grad school, I was actually sending off, I shudder to think now, I was sending off these articles that I would write and I would, I mean, this is a long time ago. So I would print out the articles and send them in a manila envelope to the New Yorker and say, hi, I'm 23. <laughs> I've written this article. Perhaps it would be a good fit for The New Yorker and um, didn't make a lot of progress. Things were not looking good. Uh, and so I thought I'm going to have to get a real job someday. And that was the reason I went to law school. OK, because also one of those master's degrees is from the London School of Economics. And I bring that up because the way you approach many of your pieces and Rogues is the new book. It's out now. True stories of grifters, killers, rebels and crooks. And when you're covering the crooks, you need to be able to follow the money. I've always been interested in the business side of crime. Mm -hmm. that, that's just an angle on criminality that I, I, has always really intrigued me. And I'm not, I'm not the most numerate, you know, good mm -hmm. with numbers guy. I can barely balance my checkbook. But the, I do think it's a sort of, it's an interesting lens on bad guys. And I should say, in some cases, that's, people like Chapo Guzman running the Sinaloa cartel or this guy I wrote about who's the biggest mobster in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it's it's like the white collar bad guys, the bad guys who don't necessarily ever get criminally charged. There's a big story about this guy, Steve Cohen, in, in the new mm -hmm. book, um, who ran a hedge fund that got into all sorts of trouble for insider trading. And he was never personally charged. And today he's the owner of the New York Mets. It reads like an episode of Billions. It really does. I mean, you get into these details, and especially in that case, I remember when that was playing out in the papers in New York, and I'm thinking, okay, there will be jail. Oh, and there was not. Oh, no. There was yeah. not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny you should say that because that story came out in the, in the New Yorker mm -hmm. before Billions came out, but they were working mm -hmm. on the show and the writers of Billions had me come in and talk to them. Um, I don't doubt it. <laughs> I yeah, do not yeah, doubt so that I, for a second. So I had, I had a conversation with them about that one. But here's the thing. You've, it's pieces from maybe 12 years of your career at the New Yorker and you've been there for almost two decades. I mean, you started in what, 06? Oh, 05 was the oh, first time okay. the piece came out in 06. Yeah. Okay. 
So, I mean, you've been there more than a minute. How do you sit down with all of these pieces? And I'm going to come to the follow-up pieces that you get to do. Mm -hmm. But how did you decide what made it into Rogues? Part of what I love about my job and about writing magazine articles for a living is that you get to be a little bit of a dilettante. You get to just sort of move from subject to subject. You're not really a specialist in anything. Um, different people work in different ways. And I happen to be somebody who I like to plunge into something and really absorb it. But then I find that I get bored at a certain point. And so I like to kind of get in soak it all in, tell my version of the story, and then move on to something completely different. And I always think that it's the variety that I like mm -hmm. and the fact that I'm not constrained. There's no one story that I have to keep telling. When I looked back to put this collection together, you have this sudden moment where you're like, oh, God, I only have two or three themes. You know, I, in fact, I keep writing the same story in some way or another. To some extent, these were some of my favorites, um, mm -hmm. picking out ones that that really lingered with me or or ones where I felt as though I'd, I'd told the story in a particularly effective way. You know, the title is Rogues, and I, I, I realized in retrospect that I'm, I'm interested in deviant behavior of one sort or another, why it is that people skirt the rules or break the rules, or, you know, sometimes they're not breaking the rules, but what they're doing is they're, they have these powerful personalities, and it's like they find a way to, to raise the speed limit. Like to, mm -hmm. So they're doing something that really should be a crime, but but they managed to kind of make it legal. And those types of themes are really interesting to me. And then themes about the stories that people tell about their own decisions and the mm -hmm. denial that comes with that. And often family plays a role. But it was sobering for me to look back. And I think of myself as just kind of, I can go anywhere. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a free agent. I can tell any story I want. And the reality is, no, no, uh, you keep back, you keep kind of coming back to the same well. And a piece of that, though, is a technique known as the write around, which if anyone has read Gay Talese's legendary Esquire story, Frank Sinatra has a cold. Essentially, it means you don't have access to the, you didn't have access to El Chapo. You didn't have access to Jerry Adams when you were working on Say Nothing. You didn't have access to Judy Clark, who shows up in your book. And she's not necessarily one of the rogues we're talking about, yeah. but she is an important person. We are going to come back to Judy, but you know, you didn't have access to the Sacklers for Empire of Pain. So can we talk about the write around for a second? Because you do this really well. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in the write around. It's funny, you know, at the New Yorker, we have uh, what we call the ideas meeting. So every Tuesday, everybody sits around a table. And the price of admission to the meeting is you need to come in with three ideas for things that could be articles in the magazine. Mm -hmm. And it's a little intimidating because you do all your research and you come in and you, you pitch the ideas and you see whether the editors and particularly the, the main editor, uh, David Remnick, mm -hmm. are, are into it. And I've been going to these meetings for years because they're fascinating. But there's this funny thing that happens, which is that I'd say every six months, will be in the meeting and somebody will say, we should write a profile of Beyonce. And everybody will kind of roll their eyes and say, we've been asking for years, she won't do it. You know, she won't give us access. And then we sort of move on and decide, okay, well, no Beyonce profile because she doesn't want to play ball. And I think that's pretty typical mm -hmm. uh, at, at a lot of publications where you want to write about somebody and if they don't want to be written about and they don't want to engage, then you just sort of move on. And mm -hmm. occasionally you do this thing called the write around, as you say, where you sort of have a central void in the, in the article, but that you don't let that stop you. 
And I think you often have to work a lot harder to mm -hmm. do those pieces because, you know, in my case, I'm trying to find people who know them. Um, it's like, you know, I wrote a, there's a big story in Rogues about Mark Burnett, who was the reality TV producer who made The Apprentice. And he wanted mm -hmm. nothing to do with me, wouldn't talk to me, but he had these two ex-wives who <laughs> I tracked down and they were happy to talk with me on the record about him. And so you have to kind of do that work. When, the, when I was writing about the Sacklers, I was able to get all of these emails, these mm -hmm. incredibly, and so even though they wouldn't talk to me, I was able to kind of tell the story in their words. Mm -hmm. And I, I also think, I, I tend to think that access is a little overrated. I mean, I've written about billionaires, I've written about famous people where uh, they say, okay, you can have an interview, you're gonna show up in this hotel conference room on this day, there's gonna be a PR person in the room, mm -hmm. there's gonna be a lawyer in the room, mm -hmm. they're gonna tell you there's certain things you can't ask. And to me, that often feels uncomfortably close to, pub to PR, to public relations. I much prefer to feel unconstrained, like I could tell the story as I see it. Yeah, I think right now, access journalism is super overrated. I'm not the only person who feels that way, but media literacy is something that is so important and we, sort of treat it as an afterthought. And it's like, no, you actually need to be able to apply critical thinking to things like stories in The New Yorker. Or, I mean, do I really need to read Sean Penn interviewing El Chapo in Rolling Stone? Eh, you wrote a really great follow-up piece to that. And this is part of what we're talking about. I mean, it was, as you describe it in The New Yorker, two guys broing out. And I'm thinking, Sean Penn, El Chapo, I, why? And totally. again, it's a stunt. It's a total stunt. It doesn't need to stunt. exist. And, and on top of that, I mean, that's a particularly vivid example mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. sense that, um, you know, I think often with access journalism, the idea is you don't really want to offend the person that they're, mm -hmm. they're kind of using the access they give you as like a chip that they can barter. And so as a consequence, you get, you know, I mean, for years, we've had really favorable coverage of, for instance, Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is driven by the way in which they're relating to the press corps in Washington. I mean, they've kind of handled it really brilliantly, right? Like they have a way of getting their mm -hmm. message out. But I think that they often use journalists to do that sort of thing. With Sean Penn, it's even more extreme, right? Because there you have a guy who wants to go and bro out with Chapo Guzman uh, in Mexico. In terms of the kinds of questions he's asking, you know, he doesn't want to piss off his host, right? Because mm -hmm. his host has killed lots of people. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, the frustration is, so then we get this big interview with Chapo Guzman in which he doesn't ask a tough question. How long did that original story take to report? So that one actually came together really quickly. I okay. mean, the, these pieces often take a long time mm -hmm. to come together. I'll often work on a story for six months, sometimes a year. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a sort of a fast break because what happened was I had written another piece in The New Yorker, which is also in Rogues, about this guy who was known as the Prince of Marbella, this mm -hmm. very um, colorful, uh, charismatic arms broker who lived in mm -hmm. the south of Spain. And he was brought down by this special unit of the Drug Enforcement Administration by the mm -hmm. DEA. And so I really got to know some of the people in that unit when I was working on that story. Mm -hmm. And then when El Chapo was caught, this is, if you're keeping track, this is mm -hmm. the first time he was caught after the first time he broke out. But before the second time he broke out and the second time he was caught, there was this moment where he'd been captured 
And I'd already written a big story about him, um, which is not in the collection, but I wrote a big cover story for the New York Times Magazine about his cartel. Mm -hmm. And I'd written about this unit of the DEA. And so I was really well positioned to just very quickly figure out, well, what was the real story of this capture? And so you could probably look at the dates, but I think it was like two, maybe two months from the capture okay. to when the piece came out, which I realized if you're, if you're a newspaper reporter, two months seems like a long time. But for me, mm -hmm. that's very, very fast. So the arms dealer gets you to El Chapo, the drug lord, which gets you to the Sacklers, because that's yeah. where you find the connection between heroin and oxycodone. And it's, there is other reporting that had been happening at the same time. You're very generous about making sure that credit goes where it's supposed to. But when you're deep in a story like this, I mean, when you're dealing with Marbella and Mexico and New York and Florida and Connecticut and all of these basic places, mm -hmm. you're immersed in this story. You've got to be able to take a step back so that readers like me can have whatever response we're going to have to what you've written. So how do you do that? Oh, it's such a great question. I think about this all the time. Um, and actually, specifically with the Sackler book, I thought about this because mm -hmm. a lot of it's so outrageous. Mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. I think there's a style in journalism it was very, very prevalent during the Trump administration where you had journalists who felt really outraged and then they would write about something that they found outrageous and they're putting their outrage on the page. They're sort mm -hmm. of putting a lot of spin on the ball and saying, look at this. It's so outrageous. And I think some readers, if they share the outrage, there's this kind of unholy thing where it's like, let's be outraged together. And it's, mm -hmm. it just, it all just begins to feel a little overheated. And I think my style in general, and then specifically with that book was I thought mm -hmm. you need to be, the, the material itself is so shocking that actually you need to be kind of calm and you can have these moments where you're sort of winking mm -hmm. uh, at the, at the reader and saying like, look, I, I get it. I get how ridiculous this is. Um, but it's better to have a pretty sober narrative voice. And that tends to be my approach. I mean, I think, you know, to the broader question of how it works with other stories, I've thought about this a lot. And I, I think there's a weird combination of attributes you, you need to do this kind of writing. Mm -hmm. And there's somewhat intention. So when you're reporting, when you're going out and you're meeting people and you're interviewing them, I think you really kind of want your heart on your sleeve. Like, I think it's important to be very compassionate and mm -hmm. to try and understand people and be empathetic. Even when the people have done awful things, I'm always trying to kind of, you know, meet people where they are and understand them and not be too judgmental as I'm getting the story. I never want to kind of draw a picture of somebody that's like a caricaturish villain because I think most mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. are more complicated than that. It's more complicated to wonder. I know people do terrible things. I want to know how they get to do those things. Right. And I want to know what, what they tell themselves about those things because most of the time, they don't think they're the villain in the story. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. They think they're the hero in the story. And so it's this question of, well, how, how, do, you, how do you see it? So I think when you're reporting, you wanna, that's what you want. When you sit down to write, I think you need to be bloodless. I think mm -hmm. when you sit down to write, even if you feel compassion for people, in my case, if you're doing the kind of writing that I'm doing, I think you do need to make moral judgments. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes there are people who, when you're reporting about them, you actually develop a kind of warm feeling towards them. But when you sit down to write, you can't pull punches because you're afraid of how it's going to make them feel. Your only loyalty really is to the truth. And so those things are kind of intention. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it, there's, there's the sort of persona that I have when I'm out there trying to gather the material and get the story. 
And then there's a kind of a, a little bit of a, of a coolness that I need to adopt when I sit down to tell it. As you mentioned earlier, uh, the pieces in Rogues are some of your favorites from The New Yorker. Three of the pieces you wrote from The New Yorker, though, when uh, you turn them into longer form books. So there's Snakehead, there's Say Nothing, and there's Empire of Pain. When do you know that you can flip the magazine story into a book? I mean, you very specifically call out the El Chapo story. <laughs> he reached out to you and said, do you want to ghostwrite my memoir? <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that that seems like an easy no, but um, yeah. no, I can think of a million. I, I, we we probably would not be having this conversation right now if I had said yes to that uh, uh, that particular offer. I can imagine. I can imagine some consequences for that. But how do you know? I mean, you're working very closely with your editor at the New Yorker, who you've worked with for quite some time, and I'm a huge fan of your book editor, Bill Thomas, who's, yes, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best in the business. Absolutely. So, how do you know when that shift is coming, or or that you want to pursue a story and make it bigger because magazine pieces don't always translate into books, which I don't think everyone recognizes. And I don't think you want to do the, um, you know, at least for me, I, I, I certainly would not want to do the thing where you just kind of pad out a magazine article, mm -hmm. you sort of stretch it out, but there's not much more there. I think that the long magazine article might be the perfect form in nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of a story that you can, it'll take you maybe 45 minutes to read, but you can mm -hmm. just you know, make yourself a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, get a comfortable chair. And there's the freedom of knowing that you'll be, you're going to be really immersed in it, but also that this isn't some huge undertaking with a book. You know, you're just going to be in and out. And in an hour, you will have read the story and you can move on with your day. You know, with the El Chapo piece, there was interest in having maybe maybe do a book after that piece came out. But mm. the issue there was that I felt as though I didn't know how to. That's a fun piece. It's a mm -hmm. rollicking mm -hmm. story. It's funny. And I wanted to kind of lean into the craziness of that world. But the thing that I struggled with was how do you kind of have fun with the nicknames and the, you know, it's like watching an action movie mm -hmm. and, and it, it's all kind of um, entertaining and wild. How do you offset that with the knowledge that like, fundamentally, this is an awful guy who's mm -hmm. created, um, who has a terrible, terrible legacy in Mexico. And I didn't, I thought that was like a high wire act that I could pull off in an article, but would be much, much harder in a book. Mm -hmm. um, so I decided not to do it there. I, so I, I think I have to feel as though there's much more. There are turns that the story can take. It's a weird thing to say because these articles are so long, but you know, that I could write like a 15,000 word article and feel like I don't only scratch the surface. But that's often, that's been the case with the ones that I've expanded is when I, I tell, I tell the story um, in the magazine, and then feel like, oh, there's, there's so much more here. One of the pieces you include in Rogues is the story of Ken Dornstein, whose brother was killed in the Lockerbie bombing. And there's a moment in the story and I don't feel like this is too much of a spoiler because it was published in The New Yorker, but yeah. Ken is put in contact with a Brit whose daughter died, who's decided something about a suspect's culpability that Ken sort of ends up wrestling with. And it was something I wasn't expecting because here was this American guy who'd been very clear that he was going to find out what happened. And here he is, and he's sitting in that discomfort, and he's not actually going either way. He's not sure he believes this guy, but boy, does this guy believe in yeah. his particular cause. In that story, it's about a story of a guy who was, he was a college kid, and his big brother, mm -hmm. who he worshipped, uh, was killed in this terrorist attack. 
And he basically spent the rest, the next 25 years of his life trying to figure out who built the bomb, um, mm -hmm. you know, who the author of this terrible incident was. He became, you know, he trained as a private detective. He became a journalist. He was totally obsessed. And I think what I found beautiful about that story, um, I mean, I should say what's so crazy is that he mm -hmm. figures it out. After 25 mm -hmm. years, he actually identifies the bomb mm -hmm. maker. Um, mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's just a fun gumshoe story about somebody who never gave up. And he had this kind of Ahab-like quest that actually pays off. But what was most intriguing to me from a kind of deeper emotional point of view is that that work that he was doing was his way of healing, right? Mm -hmm. It was his way of like dealing with the loss of his brother. And I've, you know, I've written a lot about people who've, who've lost loved ones or experienced trauma. And I think it's often the case that people will who've experienced great grief and loss will, they'll search for a sort of organizing principle, like something mm -hmm. they can kind of put their energy into. And um, I think there's something quite beautiful about that idea. And in this case, Ken ends up, you know, getting to know this guy, Jim Swire, who lost a daughter in the same mm -hmm. attack. And Swire has been doing his own detective work. And his conclusions are the exact opposite of Ken's. Mm -hmm. Like they think different people did it. And yet, as much as they've come to these very different conclusions, I think they see, they each see in the other somebody who's, who's like built a, a life and like found a way to keep moving and get out of bed in the morning by undergoing this kind of huge research project. And so there's a sort of respect and a compassion they have for each other, even though they come out in totally different places. And I, I, I found that, I found that very moving myself, very beautiful. Which brings me to Judy Clark. You describe her as one of the best death row attorneys in America, if not the best. anywhere. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, the best. She has a client, which if you're from Boston, um, she has a client that is not unsurprising for the work that she does. But I think there are some people who have some feelings about it. And that's Dakar Charnov. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly, but he and his brother uh, detonated a couple of bombs at the Boston Marathon a number of years ago. And if you've seen the footage, it is horrifying. It's it is awful. absolutely horrifying. Yeah. But Judy believes in what she does, and she is very good at what she does, and she is currently his attorney. And you had to do a right around here because she hasn't given an interview in 20 years. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, a lot of the time, the people, the the profiles that I'm writing are about people who've who've behaved really badly uh, and they don't want to talk to me often because, you know, they um, they don't want to see a piece come out because uh, it's going to be focused on on bad things they've done. Mm -hmm. In the case of Judy Clark, she's just very uh, she hasn't talked to hasn't given an interview in 20 years. Um, and I, I think the, the profile, you know, I, I admired her. She's she's this um, death penalty advocate who has made this very particular choice where she mm -hmm. represents the worst of the worst, as the title suggests. And so she's not getting innocent people off of death row. This is somebody who's all of her clients are guilty and they're guilty of the worst crimes. Mm -hmm. um, but her, her belief that the death penalty is wrong is so intense that she thinks those are the clients she could focus, should focus on. And I think she's a morally complicated person. I think there's mm -hmm. all kinds of people who could look at what she does and take objection to it, either because they, they believe in the death penalty or because they, they're opposed to the death penalty, but they think, hey, a lawyer of your talents, shouldn't you be down mm -hmm. south trying to get innocent people off of death row? Mm -hmm. um, but but you know, I, I found her to be a really revealing and interesting character. 
what was interesting there, right, was I had to do a ride around because she wouldn't mm-hmm. talk to me. But mm-hmm. I talked to all these people who knew her and I got, um, you know, a lot of records from other cases. But then also I went to Boston mm-hmm. and I was there for about four or five weeks um, over the course of this trial. And so it was kind of strange because she wouldn't give me an interview, but I would sit every day in a courtroom. She was like close enough to touch and mm-hmm. I could watch her. And part of what I wanted to do there was I thought of this. I don't mean to sound flip at all, but when we mm-hmm. were talking about the piece, we said, it'll be a little bit like watching an undefeated athlete who's probably going to lose for the mm-hmm. first time. Yep. And so part of it for me was she's such a skilled lawyer. I wanted to be there and see the way she tried that case in a room. Mm-hmm. You were also dealing, though, with secrecy laws that were applied because this is it was tried as a terrorist case. And so how does that make your life more difficult? Because, I mean, essentially, you still don't have access to everything you need. But we've read the piece. Everything's there. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's funny. I just recently published a piece in The New Yorker, which is about another big Mm -hmm. criminal case involving a guy who worked at the CIA. And um, he's under those same restrictions where he's not allowed to talk to anyone. And there's a lot of um, of government secrecy surrounding it. Uh, Secrecy is a subject I've always been interested in. It's kind of one of those themes that I keep coming back Mm -hmm. to. And as a reporter, I sort of like the challenge of... Mm -hmm. um, I almost like the constraints where I sort of have to figure out how to be creative and... Mm -hmm. I always think it's like if the, you know, if the front door is closed, we'll then go around and try the back door. And if the back door is closed, then you try and find an open window. And if there's no open window, you try and jimmy a window. You always have to be creative to kind of find your way in and get mm-hmm. what you need. Um, and that was very much true with that case. Doubly true, right? Because I was writing yeah. about Clark, but also her client. And I couldn't talk to either of them, even though I would sit there in the courtroom just feet away from both of them. Is it the chase? Is it the story itself? that keeps you going? Or is it the detail? Or is it really just the people? Listen, I there's probably a 10 year old kid in me, I say this as the parent of a nine year old and a 12 year old, where it's Mm -hmm. like, if you, if you hold something behind your back and say, I'm not going to show you, I'm going to do everything I can to figure out what it is. Um, So there's probably a little bit of that. And I, I just get drawn into the story. I love the research. And then I, I really love trying to take you know, spending months and months and months researching and then and often these are very complicated stories and then the question for me is how can i turn this into just a it, it just a really absorbing yarn how can i and, and mm-hmm. especially the challenge of taking a story that's about a subject that that a reader might normally kind of skip over it's like mm-hmm. ins, insider trading on wall street there's a lot of readers who i think when they see a story like that in the newspaper they're just going to turn the page or they're not going to click on it because they think, ah, it's not my kind of thing. The challenge for me is how can I, you know, this isn't that the story in, about um, Steve Cohen and SAC Capital. I found this story about a young uh, Indian American guy who goes to work for Steve Cohen and he's trying to get inside information from this old doctor who knows about these drug trials. And the doctor lost a son to suicide. And so they developed this kind of weird father son relationship. It's kind of a platonic seduction. Mm-hmm. And the young guy slowly gets this inf- inside information out of the doctor. And then the third character in the story is Steve Cohen, because the authorities go when they figure this out, they go to the young guy and they want him to flip on Steve Cohen and turn over his boss. And he won't. And nobody knows why. To me, that's an opera. You know, that, that's a sort of human, incredible human drama that takes place in the world of insider trading. And so the challenge is, how can I, can I make the human story vivid enough that I can pull you into that world 
so that before you even know it, you've engaged with stuff that, you know, might otherwise not be of interest. Does justice actually exist? Oh, God. I mean, not the way we want it to, mm-hmm. I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think sometimes it does. I think justice is not evenly distributed. I think right. it, you know, it, it hits, um, it hits some people with overwhelming force. Um, mm-hmm. And I should say, you know, often depending on where they grew up and the color of their skin mm-hmm. um, and others, not at all. And so it's a strange one because some of the stories in the book are about people who um, a number of them are about people who did terrible things for a long, long time and got away with it for mm-hmm. a long, long time. And then eventually justice comes for them. So the gangster in Amsterdam right. who ends up actually, it's only his, when his sister turns mm-hmm. on him secretly mm-hmm. that he gets caught. Chapo Guzman, the Prince of Marbella, the arms mm-hmm. trafficker. These are people who, um, who were doing outrageous things for decades. It's a little bit like, you know, it's funny, we look, we look at Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, and when they finally get caught, you realize that it was all kind of an open secret and everybody starts saying, well, how do they get away with it for so long? Mm-hmm. That's a big question that I'm really fascinated with is, is how do people get away with it so long? How do they manage to sort of skirt accountability? So in those stories, eventually justice comes, but it's like it comes decades later when the damage is done. And then in stories like the stories of the Sacklers or, you know, my book about Northern Ireland, Say Nothing, mm-hmm. I think it's the case that often real justice never comes. I wish I had a more optimistic answer on this, but I'm afraid the more that I study the system and that is the criminal mm-hmm. justice system and how it works, the more skeptical I become. Yeah, but skepticism isn't necessarily the worst thing. I don't think we can find solutions if we're not skeptics. I mean, if we yes. sit there and buy into the whole thing, eh, I don't think it gets us where we need to go. I think asking questions and not settling for what's just sort of dumped on your lap. I think that's kind of the beauty of what you do, where you just chase the story. And sometimes you get two or three stories out of one moment, which is kind of great. Yeah. And you need, I do think that as, as, um, you know, as consumers of, of media, in the case of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, over mm-hmm. the years, you'll have these like corporate settlements where the government sort of slaps the company on the wrist. And I mean, the most recent one, amazingly, was there was a there was a moment where the company pled guilty for the second time to criminal charges. And there were all these headlines that said, like, Department of Justice gets $8 billion penalty from Purdue Pharma. And all these people would, you know, share that headline on Facebook and on Twitter and say, finally, look at that, justice is done, $8 billion. And of course, I was sitting there at the time working on my book, and I knew that Purdue Pharma was bankrupt. It didn't have $8 billion. $8 billion was a fake number that the government wanted to put out there in the world to make it look like they were doing something. And Purdue was perfectly happy to have it look as though, you know, there's this big number. When anybody, if you looked closely and you sort of, you you look behind the headlines, what you find is this is actually a kind of weird conspiracy between the government and the bad actor. And they're all trying to say like, you know, nothing like we're, we're all doing our job here, folks. And I think the more that I learn about that kind of thing, the more I think any of us should be a little bit skeptical mm-hmm. of the headline and mm-hmm. should kind of try and look underneath the hood. Well, and especially if you're getting your news off of the internet, can we just, I, we have to stop for two seconds because we're all on, like, books are part of the whole social media ecosystem and, and we're all there and we do what we do. But there are times where I look at stuff and I'm like, there is no way I'm going to click on that. I will not give you the satisfaction. 
you cannot have that data. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I just wish more people would, you know, raise an eyebrow and just be like, no, you can't have my data. And yet here we are. And it's a giant mess. It is. And it's, I mean, it's funny. I'm, I'm very torn about a lot of this stuff because I think mm. in some ways social media is wonderful. It's very yep. democratic. Yep. Every day there are things that I discover Mm -hmm. New people, new thinkers, new voices that I wouldn't have found if they hadn't come to me through Twitter. And I, um, there's all kinds of ways in which the internet and social media make my job easier, and I'm mm -hmm. able to kind of get more information and put the word out. It's funny. Last week I was in I was in Northern Ireland. God, actually mm -hmm. earlier this week, doing a little a little book tour, and I had written this book, say nothing about the troubles. And it's long been a problem there that there are different versions of truth. It's like you have mm -hmm. your truth and I have my truth. These different communities tell these wildly different stories about history. And we were sort of joking when I was talking to people there because I was saying, well, you guys had a head start, but the rest of the world has caught up with you. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, this yeah. is kind of where we all live now is the yeah. idea that I have my truth and you have your truth. Mm -hmm. um, and there's different kind of media ecosystems in which people live that tell these vastly different stories. And that to me, as somebody who cares a lot about facts and who mm -hmm. builds each of these magazine articles, it's like I have to eke out every little fact and then you put them together into a collage and that's how you tell the story. But, but each fact is hard won. Um, and I have a fact checker who comes in and checks every fact before it gets published. Um, it's so painful to me to, to, mm -hmm. to feel as though the very notion of objective truth or that journalism could be a vehicle for expressing a kind of objective truth is under assault today. I know I referenced um, Gay Talese and Frank Sinatra has a cold earlier, but the thing is you live in facts, you live in the gray, you're chasing these people, you're chasing these stories. Yes, you have fact checkers and more than a couple of lawyers <laughs> on yeah, hand. Yeah, believe me. But let's talk about literary influences for a second, because it's clear that you know how to put sentences together and not every writer does quite what you do in the way you do it. So who's in your personal canon? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, one of the things that's very weird about having the job that I do, mm -hmm. and I told you earlier about how I would send off those articles to the New Yorker. <laughs> I have a, you, you can, um, you can actually see over my shoulder there, there's a rejection letter. I had mm -hmm. so many, I had to pick just one to frame, but I, it's like, it keeps me very humble to to walk by that every every day, this rejection letter from the mm -hmm. New Yorker, um, uh, from like more than twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. But um, some some of my heroes are my colleagues now. I mean, which is such a strange thing to say, right? But I mean, I remember reading Larissa McFarcar, mm -hmm. um, or actually her husband Philip Gurevich. Mm -hmm. I started reading them at about the same time, um, and you know, I I know them now. It's such a strange feeling. David Gran was a, um, mm -hmm. I can tell you exactly where I was when I read his first piece in The New Yorker. It was called uh -huh. The Old Man and the Gun. And I was at law school, my first year of law school. And I, you know, I opened The New Yorker in a pizza place after class. And I thought, who is this? You know, what is he doing? He's, he was sort of operating in a different way from what I had encountered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Robert Caro. Uh, is obviously a big one, but there's I'm learning all the time from people. I mean, Clint Smith mm -hmm. published this incredible, Love. incredible book last year. Um, somewhere on my shelf, it's probably behind you somewhere. It, no, it definitely is because he was one of the first shows we did. He is oh, was extraordinary. He? Yeah. he was ex He's a wonderful guy, too. Yeah, 
one of the um, smartest guys out there. <laughs> he really... No, he's incredible. I mean, I could go on and on. Ka uh, Catherine Boo, mm -hmm. um, you know, her book, uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Yeah. Um, Calvin Trillin, who um, had a great, he had a great, he was a New Yorker, longtime New Yorker writer mm -hmm. who had a great book called Killings, which was a collection of his crime writing. So that was a book I thought about when I was putting together. Mm -hmm. We could be here all day. I could go yeah. on and on. Basically, you're hitting all of these sweet spots. I mean, they're all amazing voices. Larissa McFarquhar um, also did a fantastic profile of Louis Auchincloss, who's a writer, yeah. you know, who at the, you know, he had his moments and I think fewer people know who he is now, but he was a very certain kind of New York writer and, um, and just a nice guy. And I just, I remember... Yeah that piece um very fondly and certainly Gorevich's reporting on rwanda is oh, amazing I, it it has no peer it, it really yeah it's incredible really... and i think i mean for me those are the kind of um especially early on there would be pieces where i would want to take them apart like what i did was i i would read them and be so excited and then it was this question of mm -hmm. how and the first the first piece that this ever happened with actually was 1995 mm -hmm just after the O.J. Simpson verdict, mm -hmm. and Henry Louis Gates published a piece in The New Yorker called 13 Ways of Looking at a Black Man, which is an amazing piece. And I remember reading that piece and it was just, it, it completely changed the way I thought about the, the Simpson trial and verdict. Mm -hmm. And, but I but more, but it was more on a level of craft. I was just like, okay, how many people did he talk to for this? And how did he, and he brings in these voices, but then he'll come back to them. And it was like, it was like taking a part of, you know, um, a Swiss watch, right? Mm -hmm, and try, mm -hmm. and then trying to put it back together. Uh, those for me were the really sort of these the formative pieces were the ones where I was I, I would read the, I'd read it the first time for enjoyment, and then I read it the second time the way you would try and understand a magic trick, you know. So clearly, you were meant to be a magazine guy, is what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you hadn't if you hadn't figured it out, I mean, listen, I love books, and I think right. the um, I've I've had a wonderful um, a wonderful experience writing books, particularly the last two books have both mm -hmm. found big audiences and it's been wonderful to meet people who've, who've enjoyed those. And part of what we wanted to do with this new one was there are a lot of people who found my work through Empire of Pain or say mm -hmm. nothing or through the, or through this podcast I did, Wind of Change, mm -hmm. who, you know, who aren't necessarily people who have always read The New Yorker, right? Like not everybody nerds out on The New Yorker every week. Um, and so it was a way to, to hopefully introduce them to some of those pieces. Are you working on a new book? I mean, I realize this is just out in the world now, but you do tend to juggle projects and keep a couple of things going at once. Yeah, so I'm back. I am going to do another another big book uh, for Doubleday. We haven't yet. We're sort of having a bunch of conversations about what it should be about. Um, mm -hmm. So people have ideas. You know, you can find <laughs> me on my website. Always looking for pitches. The um the uh you know I'm I I I kind of know the ingredients that I'm looking mm -hmm. for I like mm -hmm. you know I like big sprawling stories that um have interesting turns and often kind of touch on power and family and these types of questions so I'm I'm trying to find the right the right thing and in the meantime I'm doing magazine stuff and um we're tra we're working on my book say nothing um is going to be we're, we're turning it into a, a limited series for fx so i've been working on that as a producer which is fun whole new skill set <laughs> yeah it's a very different very different world uh whole but, new skill set <laughs> but I'm, I'm learning every day that sounds pretty great and you know we can be patient we can be patient for the next book because rogues really it is it is the perfect time for this book to come out 
Patrick Radenkeefe, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over Rogues. True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks is out now. Oh, this is such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Rogues. I'm Mark, coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I am joined by my book buddy, Becky. Hello, Becky. Hello, everybody. So we've got a couple of books to talk about. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. So the book that I chose today is Cornbread Mafia by James Higdon. Uh, this is a wackadoo true crime story uh, that takes place in 1980s Kentucky um, in a small county where farming is the main source of income for most folks who live there. Um, but in an era where farming is becoming so industrialized and so controlled, on top of a hard, hard um, stance on the war on drugs, um, the folks in this town are having a really tough time making ends meet. They are essentially economically ravaged. Cut to a gentleman named Johnny Boone, who rallies a group of farmers to basically grow the largest marijuana crop that this country has ever seen. <laughs> it spans 10 different states. It's 30 plus farms, acres and acres and acres. And it's the 80s. So uh, Reagan and his buddies are not excited about this. <laughs> um, so local and definitely federal law enforcement are ready to crack down. And they end up arresting upwards of 70 people. Not a single one of them talks or snitches wow. or gives any sort of clue as to what's really going on and who is in charge. It has a very mafioso kind of feel to it. Um, and it's also really about a community who's just trying to do the best that they can, um, though their means are maybe not, not the best. Uh, so this has such a great Breaking Bad meets uh, Boardwalk Empire kind of feel, but it's got a bluegrass country soundtrack. So please, please check out Cornbread Mafia by James Hickton. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That just sounds awesome. So I, fun. I'm very, I can't wait to like just read it. Yeah. I need to know more. I yes. need to know all, all of the stories there. <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. Um, so the, the book that I chose uh, is Can You, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Memoirs of a Literary Forger by Lee Israel. Mm. Um, and so you're going to be familiar with this because there was a movie that just came out a couple years ago with Melissa McCarthy in it and uh, with the same title, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And it, it actually is the shocking memoir of, um, of this caper that this, um, this author carried on for um, almost two years where she forged and sub subsequently sold over 300 letters from such late notable figures as Dorothy Parker, uh, Noel Coward, um, Lillian Hellman. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking. It's so interesting. And um, yeah, and the book is actually the last one that she wrote. What's interesting about Lee Israel, though, is that she was actually a, a best-selling biographer uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And uh, like, I think it, um, she had a New York Times bestseller with uh, her biography about uh, Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, who was like a, yeah, I was going to say like a, an old like 20s um, actress. 
And, um, and yeah, and she went on and did, you know, several. And then uh, it was like in late 80s that she started just kind of not really being in sync with kind of what other people were reading and wanting and wanting to read. And so she started just having trouble making ends meet. And um, it was she actually had a personal letter from Catherine Hepburn that she sold to make some money to pay some bills. And it inspired her to take her, you know, abilities as far as a celebrity biographer and uh, in researcher. And she then started uh, forging letters by, uh, yeah, by these uh, late, you know, so all of these people had passed. Um, so there's nobody to really dispute what she was doing. Um, but she, yeah, she just started um, forging these letters and then selling them to um, art and memorabilia dealers. And, um, and then at some point she, uh, she moved from just from selling the forgeries to uh, replacing the real ones with her forged copies. Uh, so it just, yeah, it's, a, it's just, a, it's a crazy story. It really is insane. Uh, the FBI did end up finally catching her. And uh, yeah, I think uh, she was actually then, um, she went to prison in 1993. Um, but then she then wrote this book. It is her last book. And actually, and she, she considers her forgeries her best work. So <laughs> it's a really, it's just an interesting story about a very interesting person. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and kind of what she did to, yeah, just to pay the bills. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, so I definitely recommend, can you ever forgive me by Lee Israel? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Nice pick all around. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so thank you everybody for listening to Pour It Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and just to support us in general. Yeah. Uh, I'm Mark and this is Becky. We're Hi. coming to you from Cincinnati. Please stay tuned for the next episode and thanks for watching and listening. Thank you. Happy Bye. reading. <laughs> Bye. Board Over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.